Chapter 2, Part 6 of Our Village, Volume 1 by Mary Russell Mitford Read by Anne Fletcher, Hobart, 2020 This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Our Village, Volume 1 Walks in the Country, Part 6, Nutting September 26th One of those delicious autumnal days when the air, the sky and the earth seem lulled into a universal calm softer and milder even than May. We sallied forth for a walk, in a mood congenial to the weather and the season, avoiding by mutual consent the bright and sunny common and the gay high road, and stealing through shady, unfrequented lanes, where we were not likely to meet anyone, not even the pretty family procession which in other years we used to contemplate with so much interest, the father, mother and children returning from the wheat-field, the little ones laden with bristling, close-tied bunches of wheat-ears, their own gleanings, or a bottle and a basket which had contained their frugal dinner, whilst the mother would carry her babe, hushing and lulling it, and the father and an elder child trudged after with the cradle, all seeming weary and all happy. We shall not see such a procession as this to-day, for the harvest is nearly over, the fields are deserted, and the silence may almost be felt. Except the wintry notes of the redbreast, nature herself is mute. But how beautiful, how gentle, how harmonious, and how rich! The rain has preserved to the herbage all the freshness and verdure of spring, and the world of leaves has lost nothing of its midsummer brightness, and the harebell is on the banks, and the woodbine in the hedges, and the low firs which the lambs cropped in the spring has burst again into its golden blossoms. All is beautiful that the eye can see, perhaps the more beautiful for being shut in with a forest-like closeness. We have no prospect in this labyrinth of lanes, cross-roads, mere cartways, leading to the innumerable little farms into which this part of the parish is divided. Uphill or down, these quiet woody lanes scarcely give us a peep at the world, except when, leaning over a gate, we look into one of the small enclosures hemmed in with hedgerows, so closely set with growing timber that the meady opening looks almost like a glade in a wood, or when some cottage, planted at a corner of one of the little greens formed by the meeting of these crossways, almost startles us by the unexpected sight of the dwellings of men in such a solitude. But that we have more of hill and dale, and that our crossroads are excellent in their kind, this side of our parish would resemble the description given of La Vendée in Madame La Roche-Jacqueline's most interesting book. The footnote. An almost equally interesting account of that very peculiar and interesting scenery may be found in The Maid of La Vendée, an English novel, remarkable for its simplicity and truth of painting, written by Mrs. Lenoir, the daughter of Christopher Smart, an inheritrix of much of his talent. Her works deserve to be better known. End of footnote. I am sure if wood can entitle a country to be called Le Bocage, none can have a better right to the name. Even this pretty, snug farmhouse on the hillside, with its front covered with the rich vine which goes wreathing up to the very top of the clustered chimney, and its sloping orchard full of fruit, 
Even this pretty, quiet nest can hardly peep out of its leaves. Ah, they are gathering in the orchard harvest. Look at that young rogue in the old mossy apple tree, that great tree bending with the weight of its golden rennets. See how he pelts his little sister beneath with apples as red and as round as her own cheeks, while she, with her outstretched frock, is trying to catch them, and laughing and offering to pelt again as often as one bobs against her. And look at that still younger imp, who, grave as a judge, is creeping on hands and knees under the tree, picking up the apples as they fall, so deedily, and depositing them so honestly in the great basket on the grass, already fixed so firmly and opened so widely, and filled almost to overflowing by the brown, rough fruitage of the golden rennet's next neighbour, the russeting. The footnote, deedily. I am not quite sure that this word is good English, but it is genuine Hampshire, and is used by the most correct of female writers, Miss Austen. It means, and it is no small merit that it has no exact synonym, anything done with a profound and plodding attention, an action which engrosses all the powers of mind and body. End of footnote. So back to the harvest. And see that smallest urchin of all, seated apart in infantine state on the turfy bank, with that toothsome piece of deformity a crumpling in each hand, now biting from one sweet, hard, juicy morsel, and now from another. Is not that a pretty English picture? And then, farther up the orchard, that bold, hardy lad, the eldest-born, who has scaled, heaven knows how, the tall, straight upper branch of that great pear-tree, and is sitting there as securely and as fearlessly, in as much real safety and apparent danger, as a sailor on the topmast. Now he shakes the tree with a mighty swing that brings down a pelting shower of stony bergamots, which the father gathers rapidly up, whilst the mother can hardly assist for her motherly fear, a fear which only spurs the spirited boy to bold adventures. Is not that a pretty picture? And they are such a handsome family too, the Brookers. I do not know that there is any gypsy blood, but there is the true gypsy complexion, richly brown, with cheeks and lips so red, black hair curling close to their heads in short, crisp rings, white shining teeth, and such eyes. That sort of beauty entirely eclipses your mere roses and lilies. Even Lizzie, the prettiest of fair children, would look poor and watery by the side of Willie Brooker, the sober little personage who is picking up the apples with his small chubby hands and filling the basket so orderly, next to his father the most useful man in the field. Willie! He hears without seeing, for we are quite hidden by the high bank and a spreading hawthorn bush that overtops it, though between the lower branches and the grass we have found a convenient peep-hole. Willie! The voice sounds to him like some fairy dream, and the black eyes are raised from the ground with sudden wonder, the long silky eyelashes thrown back till they rest on the delicate brow, and a deeper blush is burning on those dark cheeks, and a smile is dimpling about those scarlet lips. But the voice is silent now, and the little quiet boy, after a moment's pause, is gone coolly to work again. He is indeed a most lovely child. 
I think some day or other he must marry Lizzie. I shall propose the match to their respective mammas. At present the parties are rather too young for a wedding, the intended bridegroom being, as I should judge, six or thereabout, and the fair bride barely five. But at least we might have a betrothment after the royal fashion. There could be no harm in that. Miss Lizzie, I have no doubt, would be as demure and coquettish as if ten winters more had gone over her head, and poor Willie would open his innocent black eyes and wonder what was going forward. They would be the very Oberon and Titania of the village, the fairy king and queen. Ah, oh, here is the hedge along which the periwinkle wreathes and twines so profusely, with its evergreen leaves shining like the myrtle and its starry blue flowers. It is seldom found wild in this part of England, but when we do meet with it, it is so abundant and so welcome. The very robin redbreast of flowers, a winter friend. Unless in those unfrequent frosts which destroy all vegetation, it blossoms from September to June, surviving the last lingering cranes bill, forerunning the earliest primrose, hardier even than the mountain daisy, peeping out from beneath the snow, looking at itself in the ice, smiling through the tempests of life, and yet welcoming and enjoying the sunbeams. Oh, to be like that flower! The little spring that has been bubbling under the hedge all along the hillside begins, now that we have mounted the eminence and are imperceptibly descending, to deviate into a capricious variety of clear, deep pools and channels, so narrow and so choked with weeds that a child might overstep them. The hedge has also changed its character. It is no longer the close, compact vegetable wall of hawthorn and maple and briar roses, intertwined with bramble and woodbine, and crowned with large elms or thickly set saplings. No, the pretty meadow which rises high above us, backed and almost surrounded by a tall coppice, needs no defence on our side but its own steep bank, garnished with tufts of broom, with pollard oaks wreathed with ivy, and here and there with long patches of hazel overhanging the water. Ah, there are still nuts on that bough! And in an instant, my dear companion, active and eager and delighted as a boy, has hooked down with his walking stick one of the lissom hazel stalks and cleared it of its tawny clusters, and in another moment he has mounted the bank and is in the midst of the nuttery, now transferring the spoil from the lower branches into that vast variety of pockets which gentlemen carry about them, now bending the tall tops into the lane, holding them down by main force, so that I might reach them and enjoy the pleasure of collecting some of the plunder myself. A very great pleasure he knew it would be. I doffed my shawl, tucked up my flounces, turned my straw bonnet into a basket, and began gathering and scrambling. For manage it how you may, nutting is scrambling work. Those boughs, however tightly you may grasp them by the young, fragrant twigs and the bright green leaves, will recoil and burst away. But there is a pleasure even in that. And so on we go, scrambling and gathering with all our might and all our glee. What an enjoyment! 
all my life long I have had a passion for that sort of seeking which implies finding. The secret, I believe, of the love of field sports, which is in man's mind a natural impulse. Therefore, I love violeting. And therefore, when we had a fine garden, I used to love to gather strawberries and cut asparagus, and above all, to collect the filberts from the shrubberies. But this hedgerow nutting beats that sport all to nothing. That was a make-believe thing compared with this. There was no surprise, no suspense, no unexpectedness. It was as inferior to this wild nutting as the turning out of a bag fox is to unearthing the fellow in the eyes of a staunch fox-hunter. Oh, what enjoyment this nut-gathering is! They're in such abundance that it seems as if there were not a boy in the parish, nor a young man, nor a young woman, for a basket of nuts is the universal tribute of country gallantry. Our pretty damsel Harriet has had at least half a dozen this season, but no one has found out these. And they are so full, too, we lose half of them from over-ripeness. They drop from the socket at the slightest motion. If we lose, there is one who finds. May is as fond of nuts as a squirrel, and cracks the shell and extracts the kernel with equal dexterity. Her white glossy head is upturned now to watch them as they fall. See how her neck is thrown back like that of a swan, and how beautifully her folded ears quiver with expectation and how her quick eye follows the rustling noise, and her light feet dance and pat the ground and leap up with eagerness, seeming almost sustained in the air, just as I have seen her when Brush is beating a hedgerow, and she knows from his questing that there is a hare afoot. See, she has caught that nut just before it touched the water, but the water would have been no defence. She fishes them from the bottom, she delves after them amongst the matted grass, even my bonnet. How beggingly she looks at that. Oh, what a pleasure nutting is, is it not, May? But the pockets are almost full, and so is the basket bonnet, and that bright watch the sun says it is late. And after all, it is wrong to rob the poor boys, is it not, May? May shakes her graceful head denyingly, as if she understood the question. And we must go home now, must we not? But we will come nutting again some time or other, shall we not, my May? End of chapter 2, part 6